Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Medical Matters podcast. My name is Kendall. And I'm Sunil. And we are two medical students interested in learning about all kinds of topics in healthcare while bringing expert guests to share their knowledge and their stories. So today we are happy to introduce and be joined by Joseph uh, Skrzewski, the executive director and medical uh, executive director of medical and professional education at the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, a center which offers per, uh, comprehensive rehabilitation care at no cost to the individual. Among his many projects and accolades, uh, he has created the first ever medical school addiction curriculum known as CARE, uh, which is a course on addiction and recovery education, which I personally hope our school adopts. Um, he has also collaborated on numerous educational initiatives alongside the White House, uh, ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, as well as others. He has most pertinently to me led the summer or most pertinently to me leads the Summer Institute for Medical Students, uh, known as a SIMS program. Uh, now, I had an opportunity to join Joseph back in September uh, for that week-long complete immersion into the recovery process, and uh, I gained an amazing deal of respect and gratitude uh, for both the individuals seeking recovery as well as those providing it in such a humanistic manner. Um, I highly recommend that any students who may be interested in, uh, in participating apply and even consider addiction medicine um, as the rewarding specialty that it really is. Uh, so, Joseph, thank you for joining us. Yep, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Perfect. So, Joseph, you have a fascinating story to tell um, about what led you into your current work in addiction medicine. Why don't you tell us a bit about how you got started? Like, what inspired you to embark on this journey? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sunil and Kendall, for having me today. Uh, always an honor to be a part of important work like this. Uh, let me start off by saying, like, I never planned on being in healthcare. Like, my my goal was never to work in nonprofits. It was never to work in a hospital-based system. It was never to work in addiction medicine. Um, I was born in Trenton, New Jersey to young parents, uh, just trying to figure out this thing we call life. And I, like many of us, they were, they were wonderful, um, but I wanted to thrive in this world and I wanted to succeed in this world and I wanted to get good grades and go to good university. And my Jersey dream was to get out of New Jersey. I remember thinking back then, how can I be successful in this world? How can I make a name for myself? Um, and I thought I'd go work on Wall Street. I thought I'd be a stockbroker. So I actually did all of my undergraduate work in finance and economics and uh, moved up to New York City. And it's interesting because I, I look back, you know, I had this vision of what my future would hold. You know, go put my time in, uh, ascend the proverbial ranks and, and see what happens. And so December of 2000, is where my story really starts. So December of 2000, I go to New York City and I start interviewing with all the big firms. You know, the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanley and the Merrill Lynch and the Smith Barney. And you ever go on an interview where you do your absolute best? Like you leave all your cards on the table and you walk out of the interview afterwards and you, you feel good about it. Like you say, hey, if I, if I get this job, if I get this position, it was meant to be. If I don't get it, I... I try my absolute hardest. And that's how I felt about those interviews. I felt really good about them. And I remember getting the first call back from Morgan Stanley or from uh, Goldman Sachs. You know, Mr. Skrzewski, thanks for coming in. We like your background. We like your energy. We like your passion. Unfortunately, right now with the uncertainty in the markets, we simply can't extend an offer to you. Best of luck to you in the future. And then, you know, getting rejected by another company. And then I'll, I'll never forget the call that came in, which was really the call that should have changed my life. And so the call came in from Morgan Stanley. Mr. Skrzewski, thanks for coming in. We like your background. We like your energy. We like your passion. 
we'd like to give you an opportunity. We'd like you to finish out your last semester of undergrad. We'd like you to live in New York City. We'd like you to work in the World Trade Center. Welcome to the firm. Now I say that like the hair on my arm still stands up today. Like my heart starts racing because it was so exciting at that time. And so what did I do? I finished out that last semester of undergrad and I walked into the World Trade Center and it was like magic. Like there was this excitement and this energy and this passion and, and I felt like I had arrived, you know, and I went through this process there. We had to study for our Dearborn Series 7. That was our, our licensure. And, and I remember the, you know, the day that I was supposed to take my Series 7 licensing exam, I didn't go into the World Trade Center, into the towers like I did every other day. I went to one of those Sylvan testing learning centers with the partitions there and the cameras on me. And I sat down for my test and it's a six hour exam. There's a three hour first part. There's an hour mandatory break in the middle. There's a three hour second part. And so I got there like eight in the morning after about two hours and 45 minutes, I was ready for my break. And I walked into the waiting room and I saw these two women and they were just like filled with emotion. And they said, sir, are you okay? And I looked back at them and I said, well, kind of stressed out right now. I just took the first half of this test. I still have the second half to go. And they said, no, sir, no, don't you work for Morgan Stanley? And I said, yes. And they said, well, don't you work in the World Trade Center in North Tower? And I said, yes. And they, they said, well, the towers have been hit by planes. And like one thing I do know is everyone everywhere felt something at that time. Like for me, I look back on that experience. What I did is I went back and I finished out my licensing exam. I passed that. I remember thinking that should have been a really proud moment for me, but how could I be proud in a moment like that, right? This global tragedy was unfolding. And it's interesting. That was a Tuesday morning, and this really shapes my story here. But that was a Tuesday morning when 9-11 took place. And the stock market closed down for the next five days. And over those five days, I drank and I used more than I ever had in my entire life. And like, did 9-11 make me an alcoholic addict? Absolutely not. Like, had I crossed that imaginary line into addiction long before that? But I never thought I could be an alcoholic addict. I never thought I could be a person with substance use disorder because I didn't look like what people thought people with substance use disorder were. And you look at the stigma, right? Like I, I trained thousands of medical students, residents, and fellows. I've traveled, I've dedicated my life to this thing for the most part. And I talk to them a lot of the time and I ask them what their impression of substance use disorder is. And it's what they see on television and what they see in the movies, right? It's the homeless person lying in the gutter in Skid Row, Los Angeles with a needle stuck in their arm. And what I'm trying to do is like unteach that. Like I'm trying to remove that belief system because what I see is I see thriving individuals, resilient people trying to address this disease and get well. People that want a better future for themselves and their families and that are ready to do the work. And so I went through my process at that time and I got clean and sober and it was frightening. Like it was super frightening because I couldn't see myself doing finance or economics for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Somebody came to me in a super insulting way and they were like, what are you even good at? And I like blurted out, I said, I'm good at school. And they said, well, why don't you go back to school and get some extra degrees and letters after your name? And so that's what I did. I went back to school for psychology. I got licensed as a marriage and family therapist. And, um, and here's where that took me, December of 2006. So this is like 15 years ago, a little bit over. Uh, President Gerald Ford passed away. 
And I remember shortly thereafter, you know, getting a call to check out the Betty Ford Center. And so I hopped on a plane and I flew, you know, 2,500 miles across the United States. And I came here and I remember driving through our security gate on campus here. It's beautiful. It's 27 acres, nine large scale buildings. And when I drove onto campus, I had this feeling of serenity and peace and family and belonging. And it was everything I had been looking for my entire life. And so I started working here. I worked in a clinical role when I started here so I could work towards getting my graduate degree and getting my license. I worked on our med detox unit and sort of became a student of the game, just started working on learning about the brain and learning about psychology and sociology and spirituality. I became a men's counselor over on our units here. And then I'll never forget this, uh, December of 2008, President Barack Obama was elected. And shortly thereafter, I got the opportunity to work with one of my mentors, Dr. Tom McClellan, who was the drug czar for the Obama administration. And I'll never forgetting a call. It was so surreal. It was a Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. and they said, be by your phone. And so I'm like sitting there in my office, right? And the phone rings, this phone, and I answer. And it clicks and it says, please hold for the president of the United States of America. <laughs> and then it clicks again. And he says, Joseph, screw it, you know, it's Brooks. I'm a go Like I freaked out. Like I was like a total fanboy at that time. Uh, but I started talking to him about things. And what we were talking about was the substance use portion of the Affordable Care Act. And we started writing policy and we started looking at different types of things. And really we started doing, doing work that was just so important and so necessary. And so I then got the opportunity to work in medical and professional education, which again is what I've done for the better part of the last 12 years or so, standing up addiction medicine fellowships, expanding programs like the Summer Institute for Medical Students or medical education programs like you participated in here, Sunil, uh, traveling the world, carrying a message. Um, like I, I'm a seeds guy, I fire seeds out there, I wave hoses around, some grow, some don't, I take nothing personally, I embrace rejection and burst through it. Um, but I come from a place of gratitude and all the work that I do because I just know that I'm trying to build an army of individuals like yourselves and your audience and just people that are willing and ready to embrace humanity and do something so important. And so when I was working on these programs, these immersive sims and PIR and fellowships, and I did that online learning platform, which honestly nobody wanted at the beginning. Like, like nobody wanted to like flip the classroom and do online learning. Um, but we knew that they needed to do that, especially when it came to substance use disorders, because it wasn't required learning in med school. And so here we were, and what happened is when the opiate epidemic hit, you know, enough middle-class white people started dying from this disease. And they said, well, you know, what's out there right now? And it was platforms that we had built and people started using it. And like from, from grants that we wrote to platforms that we built, I mean, I remember when nobody wanted that thing, and now we had, you know, 40 plus schools that use it, 200,000 individuals have learned about substance use disorders from a platform that no one wanted. And it was just because we continued to work and move in the right direction. So I've, I've made a career and a life out of that. Like I've made a, you know, plus I like working with med students. You guys are like bright eyed, bushy tailed, fresh and green, not broken or jaded by the system. You're open minded and open hearted and, and you tend to really want to enact and instill change in other individuals. So. Um, so that's been you know, that's been my calling and my story, and that's my uh, my plan for for my further work. You know, expand and and you know just really carry a, a message to help other individuals. Wow, thank you. That that is awesome. I I knew that you had 
a magnitude of depth and an impact through Betty Ford, but I didn't realize just how expansive it was. I mean, the call of President Obama, that's, I didn't know about that. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. And the work that you've done is, is really amazing. Um, so I wanted to ask, how do you feel your personal experience with addiction has shaped your perception towards others facing it? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of times we talk to our trainees and we talk to our staff and our colleagues about like healthy boundaries, right? Like, like how to set healthy boundaries and, you know, how to connect with our patients on a deep level, but, but make sure that they know it's about them, right? Like how can we share in a proper, appropriate way um, stories or incidents or supportive messages with a patient population that, that really needs us, right? And so like I had this story and, and so many people have stories and some are dramatic and some aren't and somewhere in the middle there. Um, but for me, it was just all about leveraging my lived experience to help others. And so, you know, again, it's, it's interesting. My plan again was never to go into addiction medicine. I remember at the early part of my career, people were like, why would you want to do that to yourself? Like, why would you want to throw it? I mean, the, again, these sort of stigmatized viewpoints as to why I would want to do that type of work. And, and they didn't see the sort of resiliency in the patient population that we serve. Um, so, I mean, I, I leverage that experience in keeping me motivated and keeping me, you know, in tune with the population of people that we serve. Um, I use it effectively or efficiently and, and, and speaking to students sometimes, you know, I tend to share things that I think can help empower them and, and charge them up because I think that type of work is important. Um, but there are times too, you know, when we need to rein people in, they start getting a little bit too personal, they start going a little too deep. And in that moment, we just treat it as a learning experience, a teachable moment. And, you know, people tend to respond and, and appreciate that as well. But, and trainees will come to me all the time. They're like, do I need to be? And I think this is important, an important question. They're like, do I need to be in recovery from addiction to work in addiction medicine? And the answer is absolutely not. You know, we need a good cross-section of everything. If you went and surveyed, you know, we have, Hazel and Betty Ford's a, a big operation, largest nonprofit substance use system in the world, 17 sites in nine states. We've got, you know, 25,000 patients we serve each year. We've got 1,500 staff members or so. If you pulled all of those individuals that work here, you know, you'd get a good cross-section. You know, maybe, I don't know, 40 to 60% might be in some sort of personal recovery from a substance. Many of the others might have a family member, friend, or loved one, some, some sort of why they want to work in this field as well. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, we're just trying to leverage all of the talents at our disposal to make sure that we can provide a well-rounded teaching uh, learning experience. So when I did SIMS, the Summer Institute for Medical Students, um, did it last September. Uh, so it was like this week-long um, event. And yeah, just the type of experiences I personally had, even though you know, I'm not myself in recovery, uh, really did make me that much more appreciative of the strength that these individuals uh, showed and continue to show uh, like day in day out just going to each and every one of the uh, each and every one of their events their uh, group sessions um, all these various activities uh, that are going on all the time it takes it takes a lot it takes a lot of willpower um, and it's willpower that these individuals have uh, so when we when we look at individuals like experiencing addiction not a weakness not a weakness in any way it's it's a it's a transient thing that those individuals are well able to overcome provided that provided that we don't uh oppress those individuals provided that we don't discriminate against those individuals and try to treat them as as humans humans um that could that could use some help 
Um, and I don't know if, like how much justice I did to the program, to the Sims program. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, can you tell us about, uh, I guess, like what, what's unique about um, Betty Ford's approach to treatment? Like what, what, what you think is unique about this Sims uh, program relative to um, say other programs or other treatment options? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, you, you definitely did the program justice. So uh, you brought a lot to the table. And I think that's what's so important about it. I mean, students get out of the program what they're going to put into it, right? And I just say, come with an open mind and come with an open heart and let the magic happen. And, and it's true immersion. Like we take students and, you know, most of the time they're 15 to 17 students at a time and we have them go through treatment so they can see addiction through the eyes of human beings living with Right. So like, what's the best way to learn, right? To be able to look people in the eye that are hurting, right? Or look people in the eye that are going through a process and remember their faces and their stories so that, you know, three, five, 10 years down the line, when you're dealing with a patient that's going through a, a similar scenario, you remember them and you remember some sort of like some sort of relatable moment. Um, you know, I've, I've always been the immersion guy. I mean, I love teaching that way. And I love bringing people here because the reality that I see much of the time is that your exposure, your experience to people with substance use disorder is typically in an emergency department while they're brought to you in crisis, right? They're brought to you with, you know, facial lacerations. They're brought to you with alcohol in their breath. They're brought to you, you know, when they're spinning out or spiraling, they're brought to you much of the time at their worst, what I want to do is I want to show students, residents, fellows, active practitioners, anyone in a safety-sensitive position, the magic of recovery, that people do, in fact, get clean and sober and stay clean and sober and live beautiful lives for themselves and their families. And I don't think you get to see that enough in this world. Like, you, you think about what that looks like. So we, we bring people in for five days, 50 hours, uh, on-site immersive experiences. I know you're going to grow professionally, organically through the information that we show you right? Like you're going to pick up on the brain. Students are bright. They're super smart. They understand how, how that works. Um, but what I want to make sure you walk away with is this personally validating and rewarding experience. Like how are you going to change as an individual? And I always tell my students, I say like, it's okay to laugh this week. It's okay to cry this week. It's okay to be human this week. Like let your hair down. And if there was ever a time to let it all hang out, do it here. Because we have built a culture of acceptance. Like this is an environment here whereby our students and our staff and our patients love, love, love having you here. Like the, the patients get pumped up. They're so excited when the students are coming because for that week they become your teachers. And they can share about what it was like when they went to the doctor's office and they can share about, you know, what types of, of symptoms they were talking about. And they can share about, you know, how they were treated, whether that be good, bad, or in between. I mean, that type of experience when you can ask them what questions to ask, you know, like, I mean, you can get a cage questionnaire or something like that, you know, sort of book education in a school-based environment. But if I put you in a treatment facility, sitting with individuals that are fully compromised, that have made the ultimate sacrifice to put life on hold outside of here because they want a better future for themselves and their families. And then they get to share that with a group of students, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, fresh green. I mean, you're going to be practicing medicine for, in some instances, 30, 40, maybe 50 more years, right? And think about the thousands of individuals you're going to help over the next 30 or 40 years. I mean, that's what gets me excited, what makes my heart race. And that's what gets the patients excited because they're thinking to themselves, wow, this is just the start of my journey and I'm able to give back right now. And like, talk about just a, you know, true example of humility. 
like to be able to give back when they're in a time of need, right? Like they're here in a treatment environment. And in that moment, they're stepping outside of themselves to share their experience with you with the hope being that you can help people like that. I mean, there's just so much magic in that. And so we've done like massive expansions over the years. I, I wish I could bring every student on the planet, right? Uh, we, we bring them to three of our sites now, Rancho Mirage, California, where my office is, Center City, Minnesota, and Newburgh, Oregon. Um, and I'm really proud of that. That's through expansions of our team. That's through donations of, of funds that we raise through philanthropy and development. It's through grants that we write. It's through just generous individuals and companies that that believe in this type of work. Um, but yeah, the students, I mean, we pass the torch to you after five days, right? Like I have a closing luncheon of which you are a part of the right? And you sit there in this large scale rectangle and, and you share about what the week was like. You know, and you share your gratitude and you share about, you know, what the patient said to you as you were about to leave and it's moving. Like it is super moving. Because here they are just trying to get well for, you know, for their future. And here they have you here wanting to learn, making a, a true sacrifice yourself to put school on hold and to put your lives on hold because you want to learn from them about this population. And, and you, know, I, I, you know, I'm screaming from the mountaintops and I throw my hands up and I'm, I'm rowdy and A-type. And, you know, I, I just talk about the need for this type of education because you've got a disease that affects, you know, 10% on the low end, 16% on the high end. So if one in six to one in 10 individuals has a diagnosis of a substance use disorder throughout the course of one's life, then why aren't we doing more about it? Right? And I've published that. I published it with Casa Columbia in 2012. We published it with SAMHSA in 2013 and 17. I mean, the numbers are the numbers. Those are big, right? You think about the diseases that you study in med school, right? You've got some that are like 0.005%. And yet I've got one that affects 10 to 16%. Yet we're not talking about it. And when we do talk about it, we're talking about it in this really negative, stigmatizing, reductionist type of way. And that's not okay. I agree. And I think that that stigma as you kind of alluded to, is, is really rooted in, in the media and the way that it's portrayed. And on some ends, they, they see substance use as being romanticized, especially amongst um, teens and young adults in, in these movies that I've definitely seen a handful of and TV shows. And I think that really perpetuates this notion of this being um, a weakness and a disease more so than the strength that Sunil mentioned of, of these uh, individuals and in overcoming their substance use yeah exactly if you're looking at an illness that yeah that affects this many people across professions across socioeconomic classes backgrounds uh, races you name it um it affects everyone i mean it really can affect anyone at any point in their life um it really is a strange thing you've also obviously had amazing success in integrating addiction medicine uh, addiction medicine curriculum into a variety of different medical schools you mentioned that the number is uh, somewhere around 40 if not a little bit more than that at this point um but i just have a hard time wrapping my head around why we don't have it in every medical school like why is is it not a default um you know aspect of our curriculum uh, you've had you've had really good success in you know moving the needle and getting it adopted, but what do you think overall have been the biggest obstacles to integrating it into new medical schools? Um, just just so we can get maybe say a week or two uh, of addiction medicine training. Yeah, and I think the the question also is like how do you 
define success because until this is taught and required in every single medical school in the United States and, and quite frankly in the world as a whole, we've still got more work to do. Like the, the care package, the course on addiction recovery education, that's in 40 schools. Um, I'll have 120 different med schools that'll send students here this year. We started an addiction medicine fellowship. There are now 86 of them um, that are fully ACGME accredited. So we're doing good things, but there's 183 US med schools, right? There's, there's tons of international ones. This is not required learning here. Um, we would write public policy. We would try to get a percentage of step one and step two exam questions on substance use disorders. And that was just a, you know, they threw their hands up at us. Like that was just a, a a big challenge that never passed. Um, so we've been effective in, in being innovative and, and being unique and, and being clever and you know sort of bursting through the door and sharpening our elbows and making a difference. Um, but the sad reality is until we get universal buy-in, and I mean, what does that look like, right? Like, like what is that? You know, what is that vision? I mean, I would love to get this to be required learning, whether that be publicly driven and funding behind it was was going to force that. I I, I would love to see that. Like, I, I would love to see uh, required rotations. And I and I, I teach at a number of med schools. I'll go to my, my dean or associate dean and they'll say, you know, how's it going? And I'll say, well, what are we going to do this year with respect to substance use disorders? And they say, like, let me tell you what we're going to do this year with respect to substance use disorders. And then they say some sort of, you know, bizarro thing about like a two hour lunch lecture. And I'm thinking in my mind that they're gonna be like going into the communities, right? And doing like Vivitrol and Naltrexone and Sublocate and, and uh, Suboxone and Narcan training and uh, Methadone. I mean, like there's like so much we can do, right? Clean needle exchanges. Um, yet two hour lunch lectures for some reason have become the norm in, in organized medicine. And that's crazy talk. Right. And so like, I've got a, an army of students. I've got some champion doctors, my good friends, like on Olympia up at Stanford and Tim Brennan over at Mount Sinai. I mean, a lot of us truly have dedicated our lives to this cause, you know, the Mark Gold and the Keith Humphreys and, and, and others, you know, the Tom McClellans and, and the Nora Volkovs. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I mean, again, when you've got this, these types of rates of addiction in society, you know, and this sort of, and I mean, there's a cost associated with that, right? Like you look at the cost of, of the criminal justice system, you look at the cost of, of lack of productivity, um, all of those things add up. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So, I mean, it's, it's a continuous battle. It's a continuous fight. We need more people like yourselves that plan on being around for a while to fight the fight with us. You know, I, we need to be mentoring other individuals that are going to, again, sort of be there for us to pass the baton too. I mean, I remember when I was getting, you know, rocking and rolling in this 2007, you know, 9 or so, I looked around and there were a lot of, you know, older adult individuals that were probably nearing retirement within 10 years. And then there was this big gap of like 20 years. And then there were like the, myself and the Jeanette Tetrots and, and the Sarah Wakemans and others, you know, that were all like in our, at that point, like late 20s and early 30s. And, and that gave me some excitement, right? I was like, all right, cool. There are other people that want to do this rich, fulfilling, rewarding, yet hard, challenging work. Um, but again, uh, you know, and, and I mean, like funding opportunities, like uh, I'm sure we'll probably talk about COVID over the course of this, this podcast that comes up in every single um thing that I do nowadays, and I think it's important, it should probably come up in every single thing that we do nowadays. Um, but when we're looking at how, how funding streams go out, you know, I mean, we operate a lot of the time in the private sector, but we work with public dollars too that are funded through both state-based ventures and, and federal-based ventures. I mean, we're putting a lot of money towards various diseases. Why not put more towards substance use disorders? And why not have it be much more targeted? And why not have it be managed by individuals whose heart's in the right place? 
person that are really going to put it to work. So, I mean, more needs to be done. Um, I will continue to elevate my voice and, and elevate my, um, you know, my power and my responsibility to make change and do things proactively and progressively. And I need more people like yourselves that are giving me a venue to talk about it. Um, to do, I mean, years ago, we couldn't pay people to go to addiction talks. Like, I remember a time back in the day when literally two people would show up, it would be like, so discouraging. You know, nowadays, we can fill rooms, and we can, you know, fill auditoriums at times. Um, because again, we're talking about something that truly affects so many people that has become a bit less stigmatizing that we're willing to talk more about it. Because like, I won't put you on the spot right now, but I'm sure you could think of some individual that's been affected by substance use disorders, family member, friend, loved one. Jerry Moe, a pioneer in the field when it comes to treating children from addicted families, he travels all over the world like I do. He can go throughout Asia and Europe and Africa, and he can serve the audience with instantaneous translators or the United Nations or the World Health Organization and he can ask his audience, you know, by a show of hands, how many of you have a loved one who's affected by the disease of addiction? And like three quarters of the hands will go up regardless of where you're presenting. And that's important. Like that is a big deal when you've got something that's affecting so many people across so many different walks of life. It sounds like a lot of progress has been made, what you've been saying, but I think we still have a long way to go. And I think the mandatory clinical rotations that you mentioned would be an absolutely great thing that many medical schools, including ours, actually could, could imply or could apply and, and benefit from. Um, I think compared to the two-hour lunch talk that you mentioned versus in the clinic, in the community, seeing these patients, putting a face to these diseases is so much more impactful than just a PowerPoint, um, especially because PowerPoints just, they don't convey that same human touch um, so I wanted to kind of change gears a little bit and talk about prevention, right? Addiction medicine encompasses a lot of prevention. Um, for example, alcohol is the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States. Um, about 95,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually. And so I wanted to ask, what do you believe are the most effective ways addiction can be prevented? Um, in the community, but also how we as future healthcare providers can also aid in prevention. Yeah, I mean, pre prevention is huge. And, um, and I'll give a couple of specific examples here. You know, I, I think all of us think back to what our impression of, of alcohol, for example, was um, when we were younger. And like for me, I remember uh, my mother and my father are not alcoholic. They're not addict. Uh, they, they don't drink or use. It's just not a, a part of their life. But I remember my grandfather when I was a little boy, like four or five, six, seven years old, watching him drink. And when he drank, he changed. He was like a different person. He wasn't the, you know, happy, ho-hum grandfather that I knew and loved. Like it was like something had, had flipped in his brain that caused him to act in a very negative way. And I remember that. You know, and as like a little kid, I used to think like that was my fault. Like, what did I do, right? And I think many kids take on that burden. They make up stories with respect to why their grandparents or aunts or uncles or parents or others, you know, drink or use and change. And for us, you know, when it comes to prevention, there are, there are a number of things. Like, you know, first, like we're trying to delay the first drink or drug for, for individuals, right? So like, I'm not here for like prohibition. I, I am I'm very firmly grounded in reality. And I know that many people are, are going to drink or are going to use. 
but there's a big difference between someone that starts drinking or using at 10 years old versus someone that starts drinking or using at 15 year olds and, and how that affects their brain and how it affects the system around them. Um, so we have a children's program here for seven to 12 year olds from addicted families. I think like, I wish I would have known about that when I was a kid. You know, and I say that to, to so many other trainees and they say the same thing. And I've had students that were here like in our children's program as seven, eight, nine-year-olds that came back to me as med students like 15, 16, 17 years later. And I'm kind of moved by that because I'm just like, wow, you know, their life took a, a different trajectory, right? Um, but you think about like, how do we explain that? I mean, we've got programs like Prevention Works, um, Freedom, we used to have one that was Freedom from Chemical Dependency, which has evolved over time as well. Um, we're trying to speak to children in an age-appropriate manner about separating the disease from their loved ones. So like we have this bag of rocks story, which is just so remarkable, whereby you've got a backpack and it's filled with 42 pounds of rocks, right? And the rocks are actually painted with different words, you know, like fear or like sadness, you know, and the, the kids will reach into the bag and they'll take out the rock and they'll see the word on it and then they'll talk about the feeling. And sometimes we'll put the, you know, the backpack on and we'll feel the, the heaviness of that and how that affects them. Um, we'll try to talk to them. We, we built Beamer the Lightbulb Boy through our children's program here. And it's an animated character who speaks to kids in an age-appropriate way about things like preventing their, their alcohol or their drug use. And his light bulb changes colors based off of his feelings. So it's yellow normally, but it becomes red when he's angry or, or blue when he's sad. And we've done coloring books and animation and, and, and series to, to reach more kids. Um, one of the things that we're most proud of here is about two years ago or so, uh, we got the ultimate opportunity to work with Sesame Street. Okay, like think about that for a second. Like think about like working with Sesame Street, right? I, I've got a six-year-old little boy and I've tried to explain to him what I do for a number of years and he'll come to my office. That is office. Like he'll freak out. Like he loves being here and the, the girls will give him, you know, candy or cookies or whatnot. Um, but Jerry Moe and Helene Fodius and other individuals, we've all worked together with Sesame Street to actually build a Muppet. And we built Carly. If you ask my little six-year-old boy who his favorite Muppet is, he's not going to say like Big Bird or Elmo. He'll say Carly, like the little green Muppet with the pigtails, which is so moving to me. And like you could go on Sesame Street and communities, and you know, you could look at foster care. You can go look at, you know, opiates that we talked about, how you can, you could talk to kids in, in age-appropriate ways and work on things like prevention in their earliest form. I mean, you can look at the various studies that have been done over the years. You know, Kaiser Permanente did their big study, um, 17,000 people through the HMO plans there and how, you know, individuals are affected by adverse childhood experiences, the ACE study and how that leads to things like violence and, and drug use and alcohol use and incarceration um, and how people that are brought up in communities are affected differently. So, I mean, prevention is huge. I mean, I think it's it's really looking at addiction at its earliest form here. And, um, and I think we need to continue doing more work like that. We've expanded our programs. We do a lot of them virtually now, which has opened up access for people because like, I totally get it. Like people can't necessarily hop on planes and fly to our sites and come through on-site immersive programs. So, you know, one of the silver linings or byproducts of the pandemic is we've converted a lot of our programs like children's programs for seven to 12 year olds or family programs for kids that are 13 and up. Um, and we've, we offer those now virtually online and much of the time those are free. So it's, it's like other free resources to put out there to talk about prevention. But a lot of people that, that, that are in medicine and in healthcare, sometimes they go to pediatric, but they do you know, adolescent and child psychiatry and 
And sometimes they bridge over to substance use disorders because it's so common. Like again, they are seeing it frequently time and time and time again. My good friend Sharon Levy over at Boston Children's Hospital, I mean, she's dedicated her life. Hoover Adger over at Johns Hopkins, he's dedicated his life. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that that are speaking the same language that I'm speaking and trying to do these productive, progressive things, but we need more. And so um, so super passionate about prevention. Again, um, my six-year-old firmly knows um, about his father, about me being in recovery and about the work that I do. And he just thinks I'm helping save lives. And you know what? I believe that too. And so again, I just think that validates the work. Uh, Sesame Street is, is amazing because that platform reaches millions of children. I mean, I, I grew up watching that too. And um, I know that Sesame Street has made a lot of changes over the years, actually, with introducing other characters. You mentioned Carly. I also read that um, she represents foster care. And, and, and kids who can relate to that. And then um, I think another one that I read about recently, Julia was the first autistic Muppet. And I think that's a really powerful way to um, disseminate this information, this relatability in a way that, that kids can really understand and, and learn from and relate to most importantly. Wow, that's crazy. That's, yeah. I mean, if anyone's going to change the world, it's, it's the Muppets. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's Sesame Street and you know, the Muppets and, and, and you. <laughs> that's, it's such a good way to, yeah, to introduce kids into such so what, what could be a foreign concept to some, but what, what is probably quite familiar um, to a substantial portion of the children watching. Um, I remember reading that, uh, particularly with uh, cigarette smoking, or I guess, uh, tobacco smoking in general, uh, the vast, vast majority of adult smokers are full-time smokers before the age of 19. Uh, oh. So that, that whole ounce of prevention, pound of cure thing, 100% applies. Um, and yeah, I, I, comm I commend you for the work you're doing. It's, it's amazing. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit, just because uh, we, uh, we do want to respect your time and uh, not, not go too, too far. And we're not, we're not Joe Rogan. Um, so I wanted to ask about about Big Pharma, and I uh, I don't know if they're listening into this podcast in particular. Um, I'm assuming that you're not a board member of Pfizer or anything like that. Um, but you know, when we look at like the opioid epidemic, uh, opioid epidemic, fentanyl, we look at all the drugs in the market that um, may have you know clinical, they do have clinical use in some in some limited capacities, um, but they're hitting the streets. I mean, they're they're hitting. The American population at large, in a really significant way, I think over the course of uh, 2020 alone, um, or maybe 2020 or 2021, uh, we had over 100,000 100, people die of uh, overdose alone, um, and you know Americans are being hit especially hard compared to the rest of the world. Uh, the rest of the world is being hit hard, but uh, for us, the magnitude is just far greater. Um, so let, let's just assume theoretically. You had a magic wand right now, and you could cast any spell um, from the Harry Potter book or outside of that. What would you What would you change about the government's decision making um, in this regard? And like, what would that What would that decision um, be? Or what would that change be? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, um, you know, I've been friendly with Nora Volkov, the head of NIDA, for, for many years. She's been there for a long time, and she's done 
extremely good work. I, I remember years ago, she was she was always talking about you know finding a drug to cure drug addiction, and I would like roll my eyes, and I would think it's far more complex than that, right? You've got this biopsychosocial spiritual disease, and you know how can we do more? And you know, I mean, with the uh, you know the induction of an additional vital sign, and the you know the ramp up of using opiates for pain management, and then the over prescribing practices, and then the you know I remember you know 2015, 2016 as the numbers just continued to balloon. We we passed uh, overdose deaths for opiates, passed car accidents, right? As the number one preventable accident base. And then it was 64,000 in 2016, which was more than had died during Vietnam or during the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. And then, you know, it just kept going up and up. I would go to these conferences. They used to have the National Prescription Drug Abuse Conference in Atlanta. And they actually added the words and heroin in the middle because heroin had, was just killing so many people. Um, and then, I, you know, all this attention was being paid to it. And you had big pharma, you know, on the other side that was continuing to, you know, move in the, in the wrong direction. And, um, and so we continued to work at that and we had a focused concerted effort. Um, and as the numbers started to level off a little bit, and I'm very careful about talking about that, the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, you know, people were sheltering in place and they were resorting to staying home and their alcohol use and their drug use, much of the time with opiates increased and, um, and overdose deaths, yeah, ballooned. It went over to over 100,000, like you just mentioned there uh, with the report that just came out about four months ago. Um, so like, I mean, a, a magic wand, I mean, it's like a wake-up meter, right? Like, it's like a wake-up meter. Look around you at how many people are dying. Right, and it's not just like this again, sort of fragmented, um, stigmatized subpopulation. It's like productive individuals that go in for a surgery at 45 years old that are a physician or a president and CEO, right? And they're prescribed a medication post-surgery, and they need it for post-acute surgical pain, right? They might need it for three to five days or something like that, but then it's continually given to them, and and there's really like no good evidence or science that shows that long-term chronic pain management through opioids is effective, right? I mean, you can show the differences between acute pain and chronic pain, and then you can show this stark decline as far as people's livelihoods go with regards to reduction in practice and reduction in work and reduction in family connections. And it's just so sad, right? And so, I mean, this was like the best kept secret and the saddest, most just ridiculous way for so long until, you know, people started talking about it a little bit more. And, and so, like, I have a lot of friends on Olympics one. I've got a lot of friends that work in law and whatnot that are part of the opioid legislation. I've got a lot of friends that are part of the different payments that are being made right now that are being segmented out to various states. I mean, the sad reality is there is no magic wand. The sad reality is like, we just need to do more and we need to do it now. Like no more punting. Like punting is so ridiculous. And I'm so sick and tired of like people sitting back and acting like this problem is going to solve itself. Like it's, it's one of the other reasons why we've come this far with regards to this evolution. And so, I mean, along the way, as, as opioids were, were, were starting to level off in 2018 into 2019, stimulants were rising, right? And it's like this whack-a-mole mentality. You can look back to the crack epidemic in the 80s. You can look back to, I mean, now it's like a perfect storm. With, and you've got alcohol along the way, which is, and tobacco, as you mentioned there with nicotine. I mean, those have, have been far and away um, being been used and been abused and have led to countless individuals dying along the way. So it's, it's tragic and it is important and necessary that we work collaboratively right now to, to work on solutions. Like, I mean, here it's, you know, here, every single patient we have with opiate use disorder that's being discharged is discharged with Narcan. 
And so we're being proactive and progressive. I mean, we have patients that are discharged with Suboxone and oral naltrexone and Sublocade and, and Vivitrol because, you know, again, at the end of the day, like we're just trying to keep people alive long enough so that they can get the help they so badly need, right? Like death is not an acceptable outcome for our patients. So like how, again, do we buffer them or help hug them, so to speak, when it comes to their discharge or their lives as they know it right now? They come into a treatment environment, they go back home, nothing's changed but them, right? So like how do we do things differently? So I mean, it's, it's a challenge, but it's a fight worth fighting. Like if there was ever something willing to do, like don't we want to keep people alive, right? I mean, that's like the number one, you know, charge to each and every one of us is like keep our folks alive because they're worth it. And so it gets so fired up though when we talk about like big pharma and whatnot. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm sure you do too and others do too, because I mean, it's a mess, but, but we need to do something about it. We need to clean that mess up and we need to be progressive. My good friend, Fred Rotnick at St. Louis University is always doing cool, progressive, proactive things. You know, there, there are people like him that are out there right now. And, and many of the others that I, I share their names freely and openly right now, because they need to be recognized for doing something important like we are. So, so thank you again for the venue to be able to do this because who knows who's going to watch it one day, but I, I hope somebody catches fire. I mean, another reason we do the Sims program, you know, is, you know, Sunil, Kendall, like you're, you're there in this environment whereby you're going to help countless thousands of individuals over the next 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, if I can make an impact with you over five days in a Sims program or over 45 minutes during a podcast, I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. Like that's important. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess just uh, we wanted to ask you before uh, we let you go, because we are um, probably going over uh, the time that we expect. And um, are there any final thoughts, uh, calls to action that you might want to give uh, our listeners who, uh, by and large, are going to become future healthcare providers? Or our current. Or, or, or our current healthcare providers. Um, yeah, maybe advice, uh, wisdom that you could give uh, so they can support their, their future, uh, their current patients. Yeah, it's, uh, I appreciate the question. It's so interesting. Like truly like five minutes before the podcast, I was just like writing down like a couple little points on this one sheet of paper here because I, I like coming fresh into things. And I wrote, exude gratitude, be overwhelmingly positive, be a breath of fresh air, be an inspiration and change the world in the best of ways. And I say that because I'm just trying to charge the future of healthcare in the best of ways. I try to tell people all the time, like, don't be afraid to fail, like push through the resistance right now, because the moment we give up, we're giving up on people that need us, you know, plow forward. If we would give up on, on the various grants that we write or the various initiatives that we have, um, if we didn't see those things through completion or, or just continue to try, nothing would happen. And so for you, the future of healthcare, the future of medicine, like I'm trying to make my little boy proud. I'm trying to make, you know, individuals proud. I'm trying to be the, the best father that I can be. I'm trying to be the best worker that I can be. I'm trying to be the best leader that I can be. Um, but I'm just trying to work with individuals like yourselves and, and fire you up and charge you up because, you know, people need us and they need the work. You know, they, they, need, they need the excitement. They need the fresh perspective. They need the belief system that, that this is a disease that can, in fact, be treated. You know, can't be cured, but it can, in fact, 
be treated and that it's worth dealing. And so, um, so keep fighting the good fight, uh, keep doing all that you can and being proactive and progressive, um, continue to break through barriers. If you don't think people are listening, I'm gonna challenge that right now because you never know who might be listening and who might need to hear a message that you have to share with them. And it may not be right in that moment, it might be, I don't know, a week, a month, a year from now, but if you say something impactful that people can hang on to that helps make them a, a better, more proactive person, then it's worth doing. So I, I again, really thank both of you for being here today. I, I wish you all the best and I wish you well. Um, your work and your voices carry a lot of weight. People respect you, people listen to you. And, um, and I certainly, again, embrace the opportunity. Uh, big fan of you and your medical school. I've been good friends with Tim Baker there for many, many years. We've done a lot of good in Reno, but we need to do more. So how, again, can we continue to, to move the the bar in the right direction. I think through through events and podcasts and and various different methods of, of communication. So thanks again. Appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Joseph. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining us on Medical Matters. We'll be back uh, for our next episode in February.